Welcome to the Artist Appeals. This is Erin Sparler and I'm your host. In the Artist Appeals, we interview artists, crafters, photographers, and business professionals about the business of art. I hope you'll join us and enjoy the show. Today on the Artist Appeals, we're going to talk with the Vice President of Business Development at Spellbinders Paper Arts. Now, if you haven't heard of Spellbinders Paper Arts, they're a leading company in the craft industry. They make die cutting machines. They were founded in the early 2000s by Stacy Karen and her husband. She wanted to leave her nine to five and she came up with this idea of inventing a crafting machine that would both cut dies, stamp them, emboss them, do it all. Her husband was an engineer and together they founded Spellbinders. Spellbinders as a name comes from the idea of spell, as in spelling out your stories, and bind as in to bind them together into cards and albums. And if you're not sure what the VP of product development is, that means that this man is in charge of figuring out what products they're going to develop next. So Spellbinders has grown since the early 2000s into being a leading industry company, creating not just machines that cut and boss. They've even got a hot foil system, but they also now have all sorts of products. They have plates for their machines. They have paints and stamps and die cuts. I mean, they have it all. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce you to the VP of product development of Spellbinders Paper Arts, Denzel Quick. Hello. Hey, Erin. How's it going? (laughs) Great. Good to talk to you. Great to talk to you as well. I'd like to start with a little bit of backstory, Denzel, if we may. I'd like to begin by asking you a little bit about your current position and how you got there. What were you doing before you became the vice president of business development for Spellbinders? Sure, sure. No, great question. I've always loved creativity, and I've uh, been kind of in a creative fields throughout my career. But just prior to Spellbinders, I actually worked for one of the competitors, the craft industry, one of Spellbinders competitors. The craft industry has always been, you know, a bit like a, a small town. Everybody knows everybody, and you know, it's a lot of fun, and you get to know people in the industry. And I'd been with uh, my previous company for 12 years, done a lot of great things there. We built a great team, had great brands, great products, all that kind of stuff. And it was just time to move on. Uh, Spellbinders was a new opportunity, and uh, I took it. Mm -hmm. Was it local, or did it require a move? It did require relocation, yeah. So uh, when I took that position, I am born and raised in Ohio. Mm. Outside of, uh, so we were kind of neighbors, huh? So uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, um, other than uh, that, I born and raised in Ohio. I was in the military in Virginia. Mm. But my my career uh, was really in Ohio until I was thirty two, thirty three, something like that. And then the job that I took in the craft industry took me across the country to California. I was there for twelve years, and then uh, moved to Arizona, is where I live now. I've uh, been here for five years, and I've always kind of had 
you know, when I was a kid growing up, I loved the Westerns and stuff. So I always kind of lo- wanted to move out West just for the scenery and for the outdoors kind of stuff and the warm weather, I guess. So. Yeah. So from the military into craft? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> was there an event or a particular moment that led you to applying to a job in the craft field? It's kind of funny. You know, you just kind of, I mean, you and I have a, we've talked a lot and we have kind of similar spirits, you know, in, yeah. the, in the sense that, you know, I know you're really into photography and my love has always been photography. My degree is in photography. Believe uh, it or not. There's the gateway drug. It is. Photography. It is. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. So I grew up you know, my family was blue, you know, very blue collar. We, uh, we didn't have a lot of money and, um, you know, but we had a lot of love and, and I, I was an only child. And so my dad was, my dad worked in a bakery and he had two passions. One was playing the guitar, which I know you love and respect as well. And, Mm -hmm. and he's 84 and he still plays the guitar and he loves it. So, uh, that lifelong creativity is, is a big, I think it's a very important thing. And so, Um, Yeah, so he loved photography, kind of got me into photography at an early age. Um, When I graduated from high school, I didn't have enough money to go to college, quite honestly. And Uh so um, I was always very kind of patriotic. And, you know, this was in the in the 80s. And, you know, I I joined the military and um, and they were able to help me pay for my college afterwards. So so that was great. So you were from a family of creatives. Everybody, yeah, yeah. So the thing about my family was everybody had a real job, you know, because I was adopted from birth and my adoptive family, most of them grew up in Virginia or West Virginia in the coal mining, you know, in the 40s and 50s when it was coal mining. And it was really a rough life. And and they migrated north as probably a lot of Pennsylvanians did, you know, from Virginia, West Virginia. And, um, and they were all, uh, you know, I had an uncle who worked in a steel factory. I had another uncle who worked in a plastics factory. Uh, you know, most of my aunts, my dad was a baker, you know, worked in a bakery and, um, and most of my aunts, um, were stay at home moms and, or had kind of part-time jobs, but everybody had their thing. You know, my dad was guitar and in photography. And I had another aunt who did every craft in the world and her and I were very close. And my mom was just an incredible cook and baker and, uh, you know, loved doing canning and some sewing. And she had, my mom had the most beautiful handwriting you would ever see in the world. It was was almost like, you know, it's almost like she's a professionally trained calligrapher and her handwriting was just gorgeous. But, you know, she never, uh, never went to school beyond high school, you know, so, but everybody had their thing and right. it was an escape, you know, and I always saw my, you know, my family as, you know, when they got home from work or on the weekends or whatever, you know, they would do, they would do their thing and it made them happy and it brought them a lot of joy and, and passion, even though they might not be able to do it professionally. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, it was soothing to their soul because, you know, they had rough lives. I mean, you know, until they were, my mom literally did not have electricity until she was 14. (laughs) Yeah. So did you ever fear not finding your thing? I did. Yeah, I did. I, I, and I feared for not being good enough and I feared for, gosh, you know, uh, I wanted to be able to, uh, share 
my thing. Uh, photography was kind of my thing. And I wanted yeah. to be able to share that with other people. And it was a wonderful childhood. And I did have a fear of, of just not being able sh- to capitalize on my thing and, and have my thing. Yeah. I think that's a very common theme with artists. It is. It is. I see that all the time. And am I good enough or do I have the right gift or, you know, there's just lots of internal questions. You're always questioning yourself as an artist. Yeah. And now in your position, you kind of are able to facilitate helping artists a little bit in monetizing their thing, (laughs) to use the technical term. (laughs) Right, 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 right. You're absolutely right. Yes, that's my thing now, really, is my career kind of, after I uh, went to school, I I freelanced for a while and, you know, had my side gig and I did some commercial photography, some wedding photography, some Mm -hmm. portrait things and stuff. And, And I also worked for a camera, a chain of camera stores in the Midwest. We had about 40 stores. And that's uh-huh. kind of how, so I ended up working in the stores and worked my way up to being a buyer. So I had the art side. And then I've always had kind of this balance that is I kind of I didn't know weird. that about yeah. you. So I had the art side and then I also had the business side, you know? So I worked in, I worked up to being uh, the senior buyer for a company that we did about $60 million a year in, in retail sales. We had 40, wow. we had 40 camera stores. And, you know, the heyday was in the 90s, you know, so we were doing the one hour photo finishing. And then we got in the 90s, the whole scrapbooking thing kind of caught on, you know, and so I led the group to we decided to get into scrapbooking. So we opened up 10 scrapbooking stores over the period of uh, four or five years. And that was my entry into craft. And so I headed up the this whole scrapbooking initiative. That you know, once you're done with your you, with your pictures, so you had your one hour photo finishing in the '90s, and then what do I do with my picture? I put it right. in a scrapbook. So that was that was really how I got into crafting, and that's when I made the move in 2002 to go to California for the craft, the other craft company I worked for. You know, I think that's a really neat transition because we don't often see the connection between photography and scrapping, although it's very intrinsic. Right, right. I don't think we see a lot of photographers and a lot of scrapbookers um, coming together. And so that's neat to see how you transitioned and helped the world transition. Yeah, yeah, it was was fun. And and I would teach. It was fun because, you know, I would work in the office eight to six every day is what kind of what our hours were. And then after that, we had one of our scrapbooking stores was down the street from the corporate office. And after work, I would go teach photography classes in the stores. So I, I did that for years. And, and that really allowed me to get up close and personal with the customer and see. And that's what made me really love what I do now, too, is sometimes as artists, you're an artist, I'm an artist. I, I work with a lot of incredibly talented people who that have you do. gifts. Yes. And, and they want to share those gifts. And sometimes, you know, like we talked about those insecurities, the customers, the people that they impact are far more insecure than they happen to be. So with a little bit of confidence, Mm. if you can share that gift that you have, the person who is a bus driver or a school teacher or, um, you know, working in an office on a computer all day, they have no creative outlets. 
you know, and if they can find some, you know, serenity or some help in, in what you do and they love your style, that's where the magic really happens is being able to share that creativity because our, our world is so stinking technology driven and there's, you know, there's <laughs> yeah, all. Yeah, I do. We all need a moment of zen yeah, and art do. really helps bring that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We totally do because technology is beautiful. But, but, but it's also, also overwhelming. It is. It is. We're humans, you know, and we have to do something with our hands. And, you know, if it's planting flowers, baking a cake, if it's making a card, if it's, you know, making a craft, you got to do yeah. something with your hands. Yeah. Well, I think that's a wonderful segue into what is your goal now? You've done so sure. much. And we're talking about how as artists, if we can help someone just find a moment of peace and tranquility, yes, that is just such a wonderful goal. And I do think that it's a connection, a connection right. with the audience. So what is your goal now? And, and can you give us an example or two of what you're trying to achieve or what maybe you look for in a, a piece or a product to help facilitate that communication and that connection to the audience? Sure, sure. All great questions. Very deep thoughts, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think my goal now is really, you know, I'm, you know, I've done this for several years. And as you think about this, you know, like in your 20s and early 30s and stuff, you're kind of trying to make your own name. You know, you're trying to build yourself and gain that confidence and build your brand, no matter what your profession is. And then- yeah. Like, and that's reflecting back in my forties, uh, you know, I was really, I really liked building teams and doing, you know, working with a lot of designers and doing really successful things. And we had a lot of great successful programs and stuff. And now I'm, you know, I'm in my early fifties and stuff. And now I find myself as a different point where I like teaching people and I like giving back and, and people who are coming into the industry or people who are young artists or, or senior artists who might just be trying to get in, people who I think I really enjoy helping them become better and, and knowing what it takes to be successful because it's not always the best art. It's not always the best personality or whatever. It's a, it's this, right. it's a weird combination of, you know, you can be super skillful and super technical and have all the right things and the timing might be wrong you know, for your style or for your design. As we look at, you know, some of the things that we need to look at to be successful artists in, in a marketplace are different now than they were 10 years ago. Social media has changed the world. Certainly. And, you know, and we, you and I have talked about that. And um, social media is for an artist, like, you know, just as an example, we can dive into this a little bit as far as like, you can be incredibly talented. You know, you can be uh, amazingly talented in, in whatever your craft is or whatever your skill is, if it's painting, if it's, if it's paper collage or, or whatever it is. Traditional media is really struggling, as we know. You know, print media from, you know, uh, there's mm -hmm. not as many magazines around and the impact is very different. Uh, social media it is kind of where it's at when it comes to influencing people, educating people. People buy products. And we're in the business of designing products that empower people to be more creative. So that's, yeah. that's what we do. We work with great artists, great designers, 
And you have consumers out there who want to emulate what they do. They want to replicate what they do. They love their style of a Becca Fecan or a Jane Davenport or a Paul Antonio, who we work with right now. And, you know, Sharon Soul has this gift of cutting paper. So, so they see what these people do, these incredible artists do, mm-hmm. and they, they want to replicate that. They say, I want to do what they do, but I don't have that skill. So we make tools, die cuts, paints, mm-hmm. pens, markers, embossing, scissors. You know, we make all these tools that empower the consumer to make a good facsimile of what the artist does. Right. You know, I think that's a great transition into the appeal system, the appeals system, Mm -hmm. because the first letter in the word appeal is the first part of our acronym, which is art. Mm -hmm. And what does your company make? And what do you look for in a piece of art or in a concept that you makes you resonate with it and makes you select it? Um, And you just said that you guys are in the business of helping people emulate a style, a style of art or a ism. Yeah, right, right. Do you think that having a voice or having a distinctive style is maybe a criteria or what do you look for in selection? Again, another great question. Man, you're good. (laughs) (laughs) Why, thank you. So I'll try to give it a, give you a quick snapshot of like, even eight or 10 years ago, um, the way the process worked to make products and bring to the marketplace was more of a old school, traditional kind of way of doing things. So I, we, we would go out and uh, we would identify designers, artists, people who had, had a unique skill, a unique craft, and did it very well. They executed it very well. And then we would we would take those designs and we could put them into products and we could bring them to the marketplace. And we had, you know, uh, our VP of marketing and you, you know, there was a traditional structure of how you would bring products to the marketplace. And uh, then we would get the designs and uh, we would turn them into the products and the marketing people would market them and the salespeople would sell them. And uh, they went out to the world and, you know, everybody was happy. Today, that's kind of, it's a really, really different model now because of social media primarily. So now what you do, one of the things you have to do as an artist is be your own marketer. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, so like if I go on a sales call to a, a big box store and, and we want to sell them some crafting products or some markers or pens or something that is creative, they look at the brand, but then they also if you have a really strong artist, a designer who has a really big, loyal following, not just big, but loyal. So the designer engaged is engaged with their customers. If I can go to a box store and say, hey, here I have this designer and they have an idea for this product line and here's the idea. And oh, here's their metrics. Here's their, they have 200,000 followers and the frequency at which they engage, engage them. I think that's the technical term now. It it is totally right. Yeah. That's, that's what engagement is key. Engagement is. Mm -hmm. There's even a formula. There is. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, engagement is, is everything because the old school marketing just doesn't turn the dial anymore. It doesn't, uh, doesn't, you know, you, you have to do brand building and things, you know, and printing print magazines and all those kind of things. That's still somewhat important, but engagement is what moves the dial. 
Yeah. Yeah. Education is a part of engagement because people, oh, yeah. people, people buy the stuff and then they don't know what to do with it. They're not an artist like you or like the person whose name's on the product. So, right, right. So that actually really leads us into P for product. Uh-huh. How do you go about producing your products? Can you tell us a little bit about the technical process? Um, I know you have a lot of manufacturers in China yeah. and different yeah. locations around the world. Yep. Can, what can you tell us a little bit about that process? Sure, sure. We we work with uh, about 50 different factories all over the world and uh, some here in the U.S., some in uh, China, you know, there's some in Taiwan, some in Korea are the main the main areas. And so the challenge... <laughs> the ch- well, what's the process? Let's start okay. at step A. Okay, okay. So the process uh, is we want to do a sales pitch, basically. So we want to come up with a concept. So the, mm-hmm. the best thing to do is to create a a collection, an idea, a theme. Um, right. So if, if you go into any retail store, you know, there's still brick and mortar is still a big, big business. There's online. Um, you want right. to be able to appeal to both. Brick and mortar has a little more rules that are set to it. So um, you want to be able to be able to present your idea to brick and mortar and the internet sales is a little more flexible. So if you can make it so you make it fit the brick and mortar concept, and then you can work with online. Yeah. And Denzel, how many pieces do you feel make up a theme or a collection? Do you like to see like twenty? Yep. Or... If if you look, if you go, a good exercise for artists to do is to go into a few different stores, go into a Target or a Walmart or a Michaels or a Joanne's mm-hmm. or a Hobby Lobby, and see how because they each treat space a little bit differently. Some do mm-hmm. things that others don't, but one general idea is like they they all have different footprints that will call you know you have the aisles of merchandise right and so right. that everybody kind of calls that inline that's your inline space and okay. so and then on the end uh, on the ends where you have the heavy traffic aisles they call those end caps you know right so, so and then some of the stores will have. Uh, little wire fixtures off the ends of those that they call uh, power panels or power wings, or there's a few different terminology for them. And so, and they vary in size a little bit, but generally, like a if you want the inline stuff, they rarely change out. They might change it out once or twice a year. The end cap stuff is the stuff that has uh, highly touted, highly visible, high traffic areas. So if you can design an end cap, and enough product to fill an end cap, that gives you a really good presentation. Or a power wing. The power wings are also really good uh, spots that you present those. And generally, what most stores do, it's not universal, but what most stores do is they try things on the power wings, on the end caps, and then the successful selling products, the, the high volume ones, then they put in line. I see. So, so that's kind of how it works. So you want to design, those generally are about 30 inches wide by 72 inches tall or there. The about. end cap yeah, is 30 yeah. inches wide by 72 inches tall. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's Great. a lot of, that's a lot of product. Yeah. Um, the, the power wings, the power panels, power wings, those are usually like 19 inches wide by um, 48 inches tall or thereabouts. And, and that can be a really nice 
collection or program for people too. So whatever your product is, if it takes up a lot of space, you might look to do a um, an end cap design. If you have smaller product that is, you know, four by six or whatever it is, um, you know, there you might want to look at a power wing. But the, right. the, the retailer is going to want to fill that space, you know, so they were that that space is one buyer. It's one collection. It's one idea it can be different products. They like to try to stay close to the same price point. So they don't like a, a $99 item and a $2 item, you know, that, so they like to be right. close or around the same price points. And, you know, they like mm-hmm. the packaging to all look good. So when you're, you know, if you have an idea for a line of products, you want to design thematically. It all looks good together, and it all feels right together, and the packaging goes together. Yeah, and and how it needs to have a strong brand. Yes, you're strong telling visual me. brand. Yep. yep, totally. So you know, you have to imagine yourself as a shopper when you're driving by, pushing your cart. You know, you have two seconds to grab somebody's eye and say, "Ooh, I like that style. I'm going to stop and take a look." Great information, Denzel. Fabulous information. So awesome. Yeah. Very cool. So that actually leads us into the second P for appeals, which is presentation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you've mentioned to me in the past a term POG or yeah. POGs that I had never heard before. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's a great uh, tie-in to these end caps and inline space and power wings. Sure, sure. Yeah, so uh, the POG is really, you know, we just talked about the conceptual side of what you know, an end cap and a power wing and an inline might be the POG is is an actual true representation of what is it going to look like. So that's where you sit down and you draw it out and you you count up all the little holes that are on the that hold the hooks mm-hmm. on the on the actual displays and you draw it out and you figure out exactly how everything's going to fit on there because the buyers. One thing that you have to think about with the buyers is that um, they're under a lot of pressure. They're under a lot of stress to beat last year's numbers, right? That's always mm-hmm. that's always how retail thinks is like, we got to do more than last year in this space over this period of time did this amount of dollars. So we have to beat that amount of uh, dollars. So, so they, they measure to, the effectiveness measure. of each area. That's correct. Within yeah, yeah. the store. Yes, yes. So it's yeah, that's absolutely right. So they have to uh, that space, that high traffic space, is very coveted. You know, so they one. It's not like a buyer has each end cap. There might be three or four different buyers that are bidding to get that end cap because they might get a bonus or some kind of compensation if they have a, a winning proposal that gets the space and then it performs well. They might get compensated for that. So. Just for a little clarification, the buyers right. are people that buy products or say yes or no to the product at the store, right? So they have a certain number of buyers at, say, Michaels or AC Moore that review products and say, yes, I think this would work well in this space. Sure. And that's that- exactly right. Yeah. So, and then. You know, for the in cap space, they have to present to you know their boss. Ultimately, it's not their final decision, but um, you know, so it's so like, there's a competition. It's a competition. Yeah, that's exactly mm-hmm. it. It's competition for real estate. That's what it is. Okay, and <laughs> how many buyers might there be at a store? Oh gosh, there's a lot. I mean, there's uh, probably one. You know, if you look at space, usually those aisles 
in most of the big retailers is like 24 feet. Um, so one buyer might be in charge of 48 feet. So any given store by department, if you look at, you know, paper craft or jewelry or, or, you know, home goods, or, you know, if you go in, mm -hmm. one buyer is not going to be in charge of that much space, you know, like 48 linear feet. So any company could have 20 buyers. So maybe one or two buyers per aisle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so if you want to do, if you have a product, and that's another uh, one of the challenges is that like, if you have a product that fits in different aisles, de categories, de departments <laughs> and categories, yeah, right. you might have to, you might present it to one buyer and they, they might say, well, I think that fits more with this other buyer. And you might have to go back and present to another buyer and, and until you find the right buyer and the right fit. Um, and so there's the added challenge of locating the correct buyer, right? That's right. Initially. That's right. Yeah. So sometimes they will, that's where salespeople earn their keep is through just maintaining those relationships and, and buyers change. Buyers move all the time. They move from one department to another department to another department. And, right. Um, so just to recap, the POG is the actual presentation to the buyer of what their end cap might look like that they could present. So you're really making a presentation for them to take to their boss, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and with that, with the POG, it's, you know, it's a bit of a time uh, investment by both the designer and then, you know, if you're working with a manufacturer like us, because you don't just go in and present the art and say, look at the pretty things we've made. You have to go in there and you have to have the numbers. So you have to have source the different items, you have to have found a factory that can make them and the costing and all of that. So you, when you present the POG, you want it to be beautiful and packaging and you want to have that story thought out as far as like, you know, here's my idea for my artwork and here's how, you know, it represents itself in these 25 different products mm -hmm. and here's what I can do with it and here's my social media following. And here's the cost. Here's what you're going to have to invest to, to put the product into this POG is how much each item costs and what it right. can retail for. So there's a lot of like a lot of know, research, a lot of research, a lot of work lot behind of the scenes on that. Yeah. 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 And that leads us to educating, educating your audience. Um, in your case, because you guys are a large company, you're educating the buyers, but a lot of people need to educate their audience as well. And I don't mean that in kind of a, a teacher to student manner. What I mean is more of a, uh, an open communication between the artist and their audience. It's really important that we educate our audience to the benefits of our work. Um, so what kind of activities do you do or do you see as most effective for educating and communicating with your market? Like, what do you think is the hardest part of marketing for artists and what tips and tricks would you give for communicating and educating effectively? Those are great questions. Those, that's, that's a little <laughs> bit of where the rubber meets the road. And, you know, in, sure in it that, is. In that it, the more that you can do as an artist, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, your work used to be done when you finished the art and you would hand it over to a manufacturer and they would make it and market it. And so the, yeah, those, those days are gone. But it doesn't stop there anymore. No, <laughs> no. So now, and I think it's, it's a lot more work for the artist, but I think ultimately it gives you greater control 
and it also helps you deliver your brand better and it gives you long-term stability. Um, it helps you hmm. carry on your brand. Uh, I like once, that. Once the, the retail opportunities are limited in time, in duration, and some of that's out of our control, some of it's out of, out of the retailer's control. You know, it depends on, you know, you might have a really hot style now that rocks at retail and does a great job. And then it might, you know, the styles might change and people might, you know, so it might not be as effective for retail, but longer term, it might still be a very good, very viable business for you. But the education now is key to everything. So having a footprint on whatever works for you. I have some, we work with some, a lot of different designers, obviously, and some are really, really into YouTube and some are really, really into Instagram. Some are really, really into Facebook. And it depends on where their following best lives. And some, most all of them do some hybrid or have a footprint on all platforms from Pinterest to Facebook to YouTube mm-hmm. um, to Instagram, obviously. So they all kind of do a little bit of everything. But depending on what they're doing, depending on what they're teaching, depending on their following, if you have a global following or a regional following, like if your following is just in the U.S., you might try different tactics, but getting your name out there, becoming in the one thing that I can say that is probably obvious, but you, I don't know if you hear it enough. Never is hurts. That, is that the beautiful thing about social media is that I think on a whole, people are pretty darn savvy. And you know, when you turn on the TV, you're going to get a commercial, right? And you know, when you're being sold something and and it's okay to do that. I mean, it's okay. You know, it's okay to have a commercial and listen to a commercial, whatever. The beautiful thing about social media is I think it's really allowed designers, artists to really put their stamp on their brand and, and, and be authentic, be real, be who you are, whatever that is, embrace it. I've seen people who have, big followings that didn't translate into retail sales as well. But I've seen people who have smaller followings, but yet engaged, like you mentioned earlier, um, translate into sales really, really well. And artists can make a very good living from that. So it's about being authentic. You have to be real because social media has a way of stripping all that down and people see through it. If you try to be, if you try to be somebody you're not, it will come back to haunt you. Just be, right. be, be real, be who you are, be patient because sometimes it takes a long, long time um, yeah. to get that. But um, yeah. educating your customers, educating your base, see what your base is doing. People who follow you, see what they're following. You can see a lot of that is transparent. You, your day used to be eight hours of being an artist. And now you have an eight-hour day of being an artist, and then you have a, a couple hours each day that you're going to have to put in on the tech side. Right. So you're going to have to learn those, like you, you know, you're going to have to learn that social media stuff. Right. And that leads us to automate and amplify, actually. Right. So the A in appeals stands for automate and amplify, which is where we talk about technical stuff, about what is the most effective way to reach your audience and what apps would you recommend? Now, you mentioned earlier that, YouTube is great and Facebook is great and Instagram is great, but it really depends on where your audience is. Um, Do you as a business, what do you guys see the craft industry using 
what do you see your market using or what are your most effective ways that you reach out to your audience? Or do you have any tips or tricks or favorite apps? <laughs> Great questions. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, yeah, you're good. You're good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think that the, again, it's going to depend a little bit on you, your style, your personality, what you like to do. Uh, video is so important now. Showing mm-hmm. people what they, what you can do, showing your hands. Um, don't worry about production value. I think production value, mm. production, you know, Good the quality, tip. the quality of production value. I think when people, when a consumer sees if Spellbinders is speaking, they expect a higher production value, right? They, they if right. They, if Coca Cola or if Tide or if Lowe's or Home Depot or Target, if some big brand is speaking, they expect higher production values, you know, right. But there's something about that authenticity of an artist with an iPhone or their Galaxy or whatever, just on a on a tripod or on you know, hold, hand holding it or whatever. There's something about a low production value that has 100% authenticity and appeal. And Maybe appeal. because people can relate. They can. They can, and it makes them feel like they're their friend and that they're engaged with somebody that cares about them and cares about their creativity. One of our, you know, all of our artists do have some variation of, you know, some prefer, some lean towards Facebook, some lean towards uh, YouTube, some lean towards Instagram. And and I think you have to find your own personal mix. Yeah. I think artists can be very scared of the technology or get put off and delay making something because they don't think that their quality like you're talking about is good yeah. enough that doesn't matter. <laughs> I think that's so great to hear. That's doesn't awesome. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I mean, if you think about it, I I was having this conversation with somebody the other day and I said, if you think about the the quality, I, I don't know anybody who still has a landline for a phone other than maybe in an office. <laughs> I do. I do. I actually went away from one and now I have one again, but it's for emergencies only. Okay. Okay. But you know, the quality of a landline is 10 times better than the cell phone. Uh You know, just the quality. More reliable. Right, right. But we all kind of lean towards our cell phones for the convenience and we can connect and it does so much more. But don't think that the quality of a video has to be spectacular. The quality of a video just has to be real. It has to be you in an authentic situation and sharing your love and your passion with somebody because that's what they want to connect with. They want to connect with your inside. They don't want to connect with the director or somebody who's doing professional video of you. They want to connect with you, the artist. I think that's so great to hear. I think we can all hear that and need to hear that. I certainly um, have had some experiences with that. Yeah, yeah. So licensing. Licensing is a, an amazing process. It's complicated. It's got a lot of contractual terms. And I always mm-hmm. recommend that a, attorney help out and be involved in the process because it can be so complicated. But on the experiences and stories end, do you have any good stories about licensing and the licensing process that you'd like to share or any advice about contracts? Sure, sure. It's, it is a very... Well, you know what? Maybe we should take a step back real quick. What is licensing? (laughs) So if you think about, I, I we just had a new, I, sometimes I go on tangents if you haven't noticed already. (laughs) 
Stories are great. Give us an example. Give us a story. <laughs> I just had a new a new product manager that started here, and so I was telling her the story the other day. And you know, I'm very patriotic. Um, I love uh, I love the country that we live in, and I love yeah. the people that we have, and I love other I love other countries and stuff too. One of the things that I love about uh, the United States is like if you look at like how we broke out of the rest of the world and what makes what made you know, 1776, a little different. And then in the Constitution, the Constitution of the United States was really the first place that allowed individuals, artists, it empowered artists, people who had ideas to own their ideas. Oh. Prior, prior hmm. to that, you know, you were, you were a serf or a pawn or, you know, you, you had a hard time owning your own ideas. It, you know, you would have landlords who own the land and and, you know, everybody else worked for them. Yeah. Artists often created for patrons. Yes. The traditional exactly. method was to create work for a rich religious pope or priest or, right. or for a king or, or duke a king or, or whatever. lord or a duke. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. It allowed, it was the first time that a culture said, you as an individual, you can own and you can profit from your ideas. So that's known as intellectual property. And you probably hear intellectual right. property thrown around there. Intellectual property is this, I, when I'm talking to like somebody who's just getting started, and I have this happen all the time at trade shows and stuff, I'll get an artist or somebody who really wants to do licensing. And I say, and I try to give them the basics in, uh, in a snapshot. And I say, think of intellectual property. Your ideas are the same as physical property. You own it. It's just like owning an apartment building and you lease it like you would an apartment. Um, so the, the, right. it's just like doing a lease in that you can determine the conditions that you want to let somebody use your intellectual property, your ideas. So right. in intellectual property, you have, you have three primary ones. You have patents, which we're not really talking about patents, but if you want no. to, if you invent something and you have an idea, Patents can be very expensive to execute, and they take a long time. Right, so and they're have, normally for the way something is done, correct? Uh, it's an, like an industrial design, how right. something looks. There's utility patents, which are functionality. That's more engineering kind of mm -hmm. stuff, which some people have, and that's, that's great. And they're just, they take longer, and they're more expensive. Right. Basically. Thousands so of dollars, right? Thousands and tens right. of thousands of dollars. Right. So you have utility patents and then you have, that's how something works. Then you have um, design patents, which is how something looks mm -hmm. and that's a, a product or whatever. And then you've also got uh, trademarks, you know, which that's like if you file a business, if you open a business or if you start doing business under iConnect Crafts or, mm -hmm. or a particular brand, Spellbinders, you know. Spellbinders is trademarked. You see the little TM and you see the R. Those have little different meanings. Um, right. What artists, what artists, so you, you, if you get into business, you will probably file a trademark and you will probably do that. So you'll own your business name. What artists primarily deal with, which is, you know, also something that was revolutionary at, at the time of our independence was copyrights, which is so important. Right. And you think about copyrights, it's like, that's your painting, that's your music, that's your photography, that's your book that you wrote, that's the song that you wrote. And so anytime you create a work of art, that falls under copyrights. And so that's 
really what you're talking about is when you create something, when you make something, you own that, the rights to that particular work of art. And then you can rent those rights out. You can lease those rights out just like you would an apartment building. And the terms and conditions that you want to do that, that's licensing. Right. Well, great. Does that make sense? It does. (laughs) I think that was a really nice, succinct comparison. And I had never heard it tied back to the revolution. (laughs) I think that's really neat. I've actually read um, that Durr was one of the, Albert Durr was one of the first to declare copyright on his work. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's a really cool, I mean, there, there are all kinds of, you know, stories. If you, you can even just like Google, like patents and trademarks and stuff. And like looking at some of those old patents and trademarks and some of the old copyrights, it's just, you know, you think about the engine of creativity is in individuals' minds. Mm-hmm. And individual people have great ideas. And um, yeah, so a license is really a partnership, it's a partnership. between the artist and the company yep. to share that. Absolutely. To share it, to try to monetize your ideas right. and bring them to market and share them with other people. Um, right. that's, you know, it's. Uh, I've had licensed artists that there's no, I wish there was some formula, (laughs) you know, I (laughs) I do too. (laughs) I I think, you know, like back in the seventies, maybe, you know, like with music, they had like, you know, like this formula for a band and, you know, just watching like Bohemian Rhapsody not long ago, you know, I think Queen Mm. broke a lot of those formulas and stuff as Mm -hmm. far as like the three minute song or whatever. And so, at any period in time in any industry, there have probably been a formula for success. I think now with the internet and with social media and everything, you can throw any prior formulas out the window because you just never know. It's like some things catch on really quickly and go crazy. And some things that are beautiful, stunning works of art and just really well done and may have um, the right spokesperson behind us, the right designer behind it. Sometimes they just don't. It's just, it makes it very, very difficult to know. But you have, if you're persistent, um, and oh, you yes. stay persistence, persistence, yeah, you stay true to what you um, love, I think eventually your time comes. I think persistence is a key element in art of any sort. And that brings us to success. I've mm-hmm. added a little section here on the end of appeals, the S mm-hmm. for success, because <laughs> I think without defining what success looks like for you personally, you can oftentimes get caught in the rat race of just going from one goal to the next goal and sure. not celebrating the successes that you have. Um, so what do you guys, what do you think is a success? How do you guys measure success or um, do you use a financial indicator I know that we've talked in the past about opt-ins and about some profit margins and and the more technical aspects of those. How does a big company deal with those markers of success? Sure, sure. Another great question. Wow. So um, like any company, um, we have an owner and an ownership group and um, our owners are phenomenal. They are just the nicest, best people in, in Philadelphia. Uh, by the way. Oh. So, so yeah, great, great group of people that are in Philadelphia. Um, any company has ownerships and the goal of any organization, any company is to make a profit. 
Um, and profit is not a bad thing. It's a good thing and it helps people have, live better lives and you're creating great products that enrich the lives, the quality of lives and uh, that of your customers. So profit is certainly a, is a big factor. You have to make money so you can continue to pay your staff and keep the doors open and you can pay the licensors a, a royalty, you know? So right. Now, I know, though, when we talked previously, we talked a little bit about the fact that sometimes it was about getting on the shelf and that not every sure. profit, that not always every product would have a huge profit margin. So I know that for your company, it's not always about the big profit margin. Sure, right. right, right. The days of big profits are gone <laughs> <laughs> in this industry. You, you have to sell lots of volume, you know, so you have to sell quantity of units. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then there are some items, some items that are, have become commoditized that, you know, you might not make any money at all or make very little money, but you need it to support other things that are more profitable. So you do look at, I mean, you know, you do look at a blend and what, like when we go back to the collection, remember the collection in the right. fall, mm -hmm. you look at those 20 SKUs, um, you might have two or three, hopefully, two or three that you don't make much money at all on, you know, it's okay. basically a passer. And then you might have, um, you know, the majority 10, 15 that you do okay on, that you mm -hmm. make a, a, a fair profit on. And you might have a handful, hopefully two or three that balance out the guys on the other end that you make a nice profit on. And But when you look at dealing with a, a licensor and a licensee in that relationship, if you have a good relationship and if you have an open and honest relationship up front, you talk about those things and, and you say, you know what, uh, on this particular item, I might not be able to pay you as big of a royalty because I'm not going to make any money. The retail store is not going to make any money. It's a commoditized item, but it's necessary for mm -hmm. your, your program. So, so you, sometimes you have to have those hard discussions and, right. and, and a royalty, you might on some items, you might have a bigger royalty. On some items, you might have a smaller royalty. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it just depends. So Yeah, and a royalty, just for our listeners, mm -hmm. is the percent paid to the licensee, correct? Is that how you would define correct. that? Or Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's based mm -hmm. on what we sell it for. Right. Um, yeah, so. Which is going to be wholesale, not retail. Correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And, you know, there was another term that we talked about that I think ties in here, which is load-in. Do you want to just mm -hmm. uh, talk to the audience just a little bit about load-in maybe for a second? Yeah. I think that's a good term to understand. Sure, sure. Having a uh, background as a buyer, you know, when I was in the, in the photo business, uh, you know, I was the buyer for, I was a senior buyer for 40 stores. Some of the things that people probably don't, you take for granted or something like if you're coming up with product ideas and if you're trying to design a a pog a planogram you look at all of these skews and you think okay here's my 20 skews and i think that you know a retail store should sell one of these items per day and it's like that's just not the reality i mean the you know in if you're in a right. grocery store you know you're going to sell a lot of milk every day or a lot of bread every day or a lot of eggs every day, but the really the specialty novelty tea that's down aisle 13, they might sell one of those teas every month, right? <laughs> you know? So when you look at load in, um, that's how much a, a retail store is going to 
by when they load it in and they set the planogram in the retail store. So okay. when they shift and move things around, what they do, like we talked about a little bit earlier, is uh, when they take the best sellers from the end caps and mm-hmm. they move them in line, right. and then they, they liquidate and they clearance out the rest of the things on the plan, on the planogram, on the end cap, yep. then, they, then they will load in the new one. So the load in, you get a nice big bump in sales and you get a nice big royalty there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that you really want to focus on is the sell through. You want to make sure that it continues. That's why education is so important. That's why the, the work that the artist does to create that social media and that following and just teach people how to use the products. That's why it's so important because the load in, you'll be happy about it as an artist because you get a nice royalty check, but you want to make sure that the retail store is happy about it because they need to sell through. So they're load in, they're paying you money and now they need to get their money back. So you want to make sure you do everything you can to help the retailer sell through the product. So educating your audience through social media can enhance the sell through. The sell through is the continual sales of the product. Enormously. Yeah, it can make that's that's all the difference in the world. Yeah, it's amazing. And the numbers are just amazing when we talk about the amount that these stores can buy or want. Sure. Is there anything you'd like to add here at the end about where you see the future of the industry and, and where you guys are going? Maybe where you go, you are going personally. Where do you think the craft industry is going? And um, any last bits of advice for artists that want to successfully monetize their artwork? <laughs> Make a living doing this. Yes, yes. I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Right, right. But I, I mean, Magic you know, eight ball. exactly. So this is a little bit of what my gut tells me is that, you know, there's no let up in the desire to be creative. People love to do things with their hands. There's a whole generation of people that I've seen at trade shows and craft fairs and things where, um, you know, the quilt market is a great example. There's a young group of quilters, 20 something, mostly women, mostly uh-huh. young, young ladies. There's a whole group of young women who never had home ec in school. Their moms didn't teach them about sewing and they're learning about sewing and they think they invented it. You know, they think- <laughs> so they're coming at it a whole, maybe a whole different angle. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. I mean, I've been to some quilt markets and stuff and it's true in all, in a lot of other crafts as well. You'll see a, a grandma um, who's, you know, making a quilt. And then you'll see some 20 something who has, you know, dyed purple hair and a, and a tattoo sleeve. And they're all sewing together and engaging and really enjoying each other's company. And, and so that desire, that passion for creativity isn't going anywhere. Right. The it's, arts are not dying. No, no, they're, they're not. People want to do things with their hands. A little bit of the challenge is, however, and we have this discussion with colleagues at other, you know, at even competitive, you know, we have a pretty friendly industry. Even um, our competitors are, are, are pretty friendly for the most part. Mm-hmm. So um, we talk about it all the time is one of the challenges with our industry now is that it used to be people would find some inspiration in a magazine. 
they would go out and they would buy the products. You only have so much free time if you have right. a, a real job. So you only have so much free time. So you find some inspiration in a magazine, you go out and you buy the products and then you come home and you try to replicate what they make in the magazine or you take a class or whatever. So of the eight hours a week that you spend on your hobby or on your craft, as a consumer, you might spend an hour or two or three uh, looking for inspiration and you might spend the other five actually shopping and making your, mm -hmm. your, your craft. One of the challenges that exists now is that people get in this, it's easy to get down the rabbit hole and you have that <laughs> same, you have that same hour, eight hours now, but you spend six of it on Pinterest <laughs> or, you, or, or you spend four of it on Instagram. You or spend whatever. more time looking than making. You spend more time looking than making. Yeah. Right. So, so if we can have good quality inspiration and go, good quality education and and the message is, you know, less time pinning, more time making, you know, Pinterest and all those social media platforms are phenomenal for give, finding this inspiration. But at some point, you need to put away your computer and go out and do something with your hands. Right. And maybe we as artists can make that purchase easier and faster through e-commerce. But that's a whole nother topic with yeah. swipe ups and, and that type <laughs> of thing and affiliate links. But I do think a lot of people are buying online as well. Oh, yeah. As an artist that gives, you know, if you do have, if the timing is not right for a planogram to reset in a retail store or whatever, you know, there's always those totally different subject that we could talk about for hours is that there are many opportunities for you to develop your own brand with an online presence, possibly open your own store, start with an Etsy store or whatever. So um, don't give up, you know, love what you do, be passionate about it, uh, be patient and follow your dream. Uh, there's, there's lots of great artists out there. So Great advice. I think that's a really wonderful way to end. And, you know, yeah. maybe we'll have to have a second conversation someday about internet that. marketing yeah. and, and uh, continue this conversation. I, I think that would be so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I, I really enjoyed, I always enjoy talking to you, Aaron, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun I and and I wish you uh, great success with your podcast series and stuff. And I think it's a really valuable thing that artists need to uh, embrace and, and great. follow. Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, I will stop this podcast now. I want to thank everybody for joining us. Incredible information from Denzel Quick. And thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, that's it for the Artist Appeals. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. I just love talking with all these artists and business people. It's phenomenal and I've learned so much. I hope you've learned something too. You can get more information. You can check out some of the links that we talked about in these podcasts at theartistappeals.com. That's theartistappeals, A-P-P-E-A-L-S. Dot com. Thanks and have a good one.